0: Liberty. Well, what is up,
1: all of our Liberty loving friends? This is another fantastic episode of Good Morning Liberty. My name is Nate Thurston, and Charlie is not here today. We're doing an interview, and our interview guest today, I'm really excited about this one, is the founder and executive director of COVID Sanity. Uh, author of a book, COVID Lockdown Insanity, PhD biochemist and immunologist, and also a patent attorney, as if there weren't enough things going on, I guess. He's also authored author 18 referred scientific journal articles and is the inventor on 21 U.S. patents and now running for governor of Minnesota. Our guest today is Dr. Hugh McTavish. How are you doing today?
0: I'm doing good. Thanks for having me, Nate.
1: I hope I caught all of that. You couldn't have come up with anything else for me to say for the intro. I mean, (laughs) uh, it sounds like you're hardly doing anything over there.
0: If the goal in life is to have an impressive resume, I'm winning.
1: (laughs) You are. You are for sure. So um, give everyone just a little bit of your backstory, uh, what you've done before getting into politics here. Uh, We just talked about a little bit of it, but a little bit more backstory on that. And we'll talk about why you decided to run for governor.
0: Um. Yeah, so I'm a PhD biochemist, uh, worked as a biochemist for a bit, and then decided to go to law school to become a patent attorney. Um, I got cancer then. I had not previously been interested in cancer from a scientific standpoint, but as a result of getting cancer, then I got interested in it and invented a new targeted cancer drug and started a company called IGF Oncology around that. Later, started another company uh, with another treatment I prevented, I, I invented to prevent cold sores. Called that company is called Squarex. And then um, uh, the lockdowns came along, and I was just so it just made no sense. I thought I thought the whole thing was insane from the beginning. I thought I thought for sure this is doing more harm than than good, uh, and I couldn't understand why people didn't see it that way, and why this became such a partisan, polarized issue. Uh, the lockdowns. Um so I started nonprofit, I started blogging about it and then started a nonprofit around it so it wouldn't just be me writing about it and then wrote a book about it. And um my outrage over the lockdowns, I think, was why I decided to run for I started thinking about running for governor as a result of that. Um and um, but really the real reason I'm running for governor is my idea of jury democracy. So we can get into that, but that was uh, an idea I thought of 25 years ago or so, and I thought I, I always thought I'd write a book about it and try to get that idea into public debate and hopefully implement it. And then um, I realized nobody reads books for, uh, anymore. <laughs> and Probably a better way to get into public debate is to run for office and make it an issue in the campaign and then hopefully win and, and implement it.
1: Well, I guess maybe I'm on the outside on nobody reading books anymore. I feel like I still still do a few, but um, no,
0: I know I'm, I don't mean to be you or the people <laughs> who read books. Some some of us do read books, uh, but um, I'm not sure they. And actually, I think, but maybe maybe I'm under, understating the influence of books. Books probably do influence debate quite a bit and the ideas in the in the ether, oh, but well, I think. I
1: will have to say I don't read books. I listen to books. So as long okay. as you've got an audio book, then, then that's okay. So maybe you're right. I don't read any books. At all, but uh, yeah, we'll definitely talk about the jury democracy idea um, quite a bit Uh, before we get into that, which is probably going to be the main topic. I just wanted the from your from your medical background, you know, you you don't hear from a ton of people who thought that we really just screwed everything up during the COVID lockdowns and that maybe we did more harm than good, which is what we've been yelling about on this podcast since. February and, and March of 2020, that we thought we were gonna end up doing more harm than good, especially when it comes to economics and deaths of despair, uh, things like that. So j- give me a little bit of your ideas on, on how we did as far as the lockdowns are concerned.
0: Oh, there's no question we did more harm than good. So we um, uh, we threw people in it, we threw 16% of the workforce out of work. We, basically, we knew that was coming, we basically deliberately did that. Um, uh, we took small businesses from small business owners, principally restaurant owners, I suppose, but but lots of other types of small businesses too. Um, effectively took that, took it from them, them from them without any compensation. But the worst thing in my mind was the depression. The depression rate in the US went from eight percent pre-COVID to 27% during the lockdowns. So we threw one in five Americans into major clinical t- depression, moderate to severe depression. That's just you know, if you, if you've ever been depressed in your life, you know how awful that is. It's just staggering the human cost of that. Um, that works out to three hundred and sixteen. If we pre- if the lockdowns prevented two hundred thousand COVID deaths, um, <clears throat> here I got in my book the damages per per death prevented. If we th- if we prevented two hundred thousand COVID deaths, it is. Oh, sorry. Should I have had this bookmarked already. No, take your time. Okay, uh, if we prevented two hundred thousand COVID deaths, I calculated in my book also that the maximum number it's possible we could have the lockdowns could have prevented would be four hundred thousand. We had about six hundred thousand before the vaccines came along. A million gets us to herd immunity, basically. So the most it's even theoretically possible the lockdowns prevented is is four hundred thousand COVID deaths. If they prevented 200,000, half that number, per one COVID death prevented, they threw 316 people into major depression, caused a 10th of a death from cancer because we stopped diagnosing substantially. We told basically cancer patients to stop coming in, only come in for COVID. Uh, So we didn't diagnose cancers. Um, Threw 127 people out of work, threw 350 kids and college students out of school and caused 1,640 people to be at least a little less happy and a lot less free. In addition to that, so to me, all that, okay, nothing's worth, it's not worth saving one life of somebody living in a nursing home to throw 316 people into major depression. Uh, so to me, case closed. It wasn't worth it. But the only benefit of the lockdowns was to prevent prevent deaths, to save lives. That was the only purported benefit. Uh, and I think there's no question that it had the net effect of killing people. This, the deaths of despair we caused exceeded in at least in times of li- time of life loss person years of life lost and probably in persons killed. The persons saved from COVID deaths prevented. The CDC said we lost 0.4 years of life expectancy in 2020, not due to COVID deaths. Excess deaths compared to 2019, resulting in 0.4 years of life expectancy loss. That's mostly deaths of despair. Uh, um, Drug overdose deaths in particular, also suicides and alcohol deaths, uh, big increase in murders. We basically, which was very predictable, we basically decided to increase the crime rate. We threw kids out of school, most crimes are committed by teenagers and people in their 20s. We threw the teenagers out of school and effectively told them spend more time with your gangs and less time in school and with teachers. Uh, we threw the 20-somethings out of their jobs and out of college, uh, so they're going to resort to crime more, too. So the I- increased crime uh, that we've had over the last two years, I think, is entirely due to the lockdowns uh, and was entirely predictable. Uh, and the increased murders actually is a substantial drop. causes the, the murders alone caused about a two-week drop in our life expectancy in 2020, the increased murders. Um so anyway, deaths of despair, murders, uh, accidents were up a huge amount. So I think all of those were caused by the lockdowns. That amount of life expectancy equals um, is equivalent to 400,000 COVID deaths, just the increased deaths of despair in 2020. And we're pro- and we're going to have roughly an equal amount in 2021, and an equal and, and maybe half again as much. So you can probably multiply the 2020 numbers by about two and a half to get ultimately how many how many deaths were caused by the lockdowns, which would be the equivalent in time life lost of a million COVID deaths. So
1: what do you think the disconnect is between what you're saying right now, which uh, I believe a lot of people would uh, would agree with? You even have numbers coming out now of excess deaths uh, around the world and uh, being millions more than the amount of people that died from COVID. I think these numbers are going to be. Fairly clear uh, several years from now, because some of this is gonna take some time to to work out. And my wife worked, works for a cancer research hospital and the number of late stage cancers that they're detecting right now is, has spiked compared to previous years. We don't know exactly how many more deaths that's going to cause. It's gonna take some time for it to shake out. But what do you think the disconnect is between what you're saying and what policymakers end up doing? Why why can't they take these things into consideration when they're crafting their policies?
0: I don't know. Uh, it's a question to ask them, I think, because, but um, Anthony Fauci and the rest of the policymakers. But they acted like the only thing that matters in health is COVID deaths. Uh, and even that the only thing that matters in life is COVID deaths, that money doesn't make any difference, uh jobs don't make any difference, happiness doesn't make any difference. The only thing that matters is how long you live. And if you die of anything other than COVID, that doesn't count either. Only COVID deaths count. <laughs>
1: yeah. Yeah. Well, they they get that job and their their objective is to prevent COVID deaths and to prevent COVID spread. And that is the only part of their objective. And if nothing else is taken into consideration, then I think they're oh, likely what the to do is. anything.
0: That's what that's what they acted like. It certainly shouldn't be the only objective of our governors and presidents and, and so on. Um, but even um, the heads of the CDC uh, and heads of state health departments, your job is, is to promote health. It's not to prevent only COVID deaths and not worry about the rest of aspects of health and mental health also should be included in health, uh, let alone cancer deaths and, and suicides and deaths of despair. Uh, so I don't understand. I think it's it's incompetent. It's at best incompetence to only worry about COVID deaths. And at worst, there was some other ulterior evil motive to, to doing this.
1: My hope is that it was incompetence and not malevolence, but I don't know if we'll ever really know. Uh, uh, hopefully it's just incompetence. I guess that's, that's a sad thing to be hopeful for, but, yeah. uh, but, uh, so what did it look like in Minnesota as far as the lockdowns went? Was it pretty harsh, uh, up there? Yeah, and it was what pretty kind of, what Minnesota. kind of effects have you seen from that?
0: Yeah. Minnesota was pretty harsh. I guess you're in Texas and you're in
1: that I'm, Na- I'm in Nashville, Tennessee, actually.
0: Oh, you're in Nashville, Tennessee. Okay. Um, uh in uh in minnesota we had seven weeks of stay-at-home orders so we all we're all ordered not to leave our houses except if we absolutely had to for seven weeks um which incidentally is a home sentence of home confinement would be about what you would get for a third or fourth drunk driving offense or for aggravated assault uh um we uh closed the schools to in-person learning for let's see from February 2020, March 2020, maybe until really mostly until this spring. It was in this year, 2022, before schools opened in-person learning, mostly. Um, Restaurants and bars, I don't know, were intermittently closed on and off, probably a total of five months or something. Uh, Health clubs were closed, which to me is insane also. We're (laughs) trying to promote health, so we closed the health clubs. Um, And churches were closed for about... I don't know. Churches were closed for two months or so. Um, and the governor only, only relented on closing the churches when the Catholic church, Catholic diocese of Minnesota announced that they were going to, they were going to defy the ban and and open church anyway. so uh, um, yeah with the church I'm I'm a churchgoer I'm and my my denomination I'm an Episcopalian and my church the Episcopal church has continued to be closed until um, until I think most of them opened on Easter this year. So for almost 2 years they voluntarily stayed closed. Uh, I think it's just appalling. It, it, it's just a total total abdication They basically just abandoned the flock and said, you know, a church exists to comfort people in difficult times. And my church basically said, whoa, these are difficult times. You folks are on your own.
1: (laughs) Absolute worst thing that they could have done for for a lot of people. It's hard to when I hear people talk about that. It's actually kind of hard to imagine because we didn't go through those kind of lockdowns here in, in Tennessee. Uh, the governor, now I live close to Nashville, Metro Nashville did shut down a lot, but there weren't really any stay at home orders. I've said it tons of times and uh, everyone who listens would be sick of me saying it, but, uh, the city I go to for groceries and to go out to eat. I never, we never had to wear a mask. My restaurants never closed, nothing like that. So when I hear people tell stories about that, it's like something that I saw on the news and something I saw on Twitter, it's, a uh, it's tough to actually accept that that was something that's been going, going on in the country, in the United States, uh, something that you would never expect. How did they where did they get the right to do this? And this is going to lead into our conversation about jury democracy, uh, hopefully. But where did the government think that it, deci- it decided it had the right to do this? And I don't believe they have the right to do this. Uh, the- no,
0: I don't believe they do either. There's, um, in our state, the governor, there's a measure, an emergency, some emergency authority under for the governor. And so that's what he was applying for all of this. Um, to me, an emergency would be if Iowa invaded Minnesota and there wasn't <laughs> time for the legislature to get together. So we have to call <laughs> the <laughs> National Guard out. Um In this case, there was plenty of time for the legislature to meet. I mean, at at, at best, you know, or at worst, maybe you could say, well, it takes a week for the legislature to meet and decide whether to to, uh, confirm the mask mandates, the stay-at-home orders, the closing churches, et cetera. But they certainly had plenty of time to meet and and, uh, deliberate on that and vote on it. Uh, But they didn't... um, (laughs) <laughs> for political cover, apparently they, they could never get the votes. Democrats would never allow the repeal of the governor's mandates, the, the emergency powers and the Republicans didn't push too hard for it because I think they were, they, they were afraid to vote against all this stuff and then be blamed for COVID deaths. Um, but uh, yeah, so it's kind of it spineless all around, I would say, um, you know,
1: Yeah, we talked about that in the very beginning when people started shutting things down, that it was going to be really hard to... Uh, take back those powers because no one no one is going to want to be the person who took away the mandates took away the lockdowns because every death afterwards is going to be blamed on them and as a politician you want to try and steer clear of all of that so once you get those powers and you act like you're saving people's lives well when you stop saving people's lives now it's your fault that all the people are dying and just kind of a a perverse incentive there to take away all the freedoms and liberties from the people so let's talk about jury democracy. Now, I'll preface this by saying uh, my understanding of democracy and is that democracy is two wolves and a sheep deciding what's for dinner. And and so that is where I basically will come down on this. Now, uh, your, the idea of jury democracy, I do think is very interesting. I've never heard anyone really talk about it before, especially in the way uh, that you describe it. So why don't you give everyone a, a rundown and help ease my fears of my preconceived notions of, uh, of democracy.
0: Okay, that's an interesting take. Um, yeah, the, the reason you haven't heard people talk about it is because it's my idea, it's, it's, uh, so I'm introducing it to the campaign. Um, but the idea, the, what would be the ideal government or what would be pure democracy? I think it would be New England town hall democracy or Athenian democracy, where you have a small society, everybody gets together, vote on each issue individually. Um, We get too big, we can't do that anymore, and so we elect representatives to make those decisions for us. Mostly, really, I think, just because we don't have the time. But we can have the same result we would get if everybody participated with um, jury democracy with, re- with randomly selected representatives. So the idea of jury democracy is we randomly select from all, re- all registered voters, a statistically valid sample of the population of 500 or a thousand people uh, from, in my case, Minnesota, all across the state. Uh, we bring them to the state capitol. Um, they sit and listen to the arguments. Uh, for and against a particular bill. They just serve for one one bill or one proposal. So just like a jury in a civil or criminal trial, they sit and listen to the evidence and the arguments from both sides or all sides. So everybody gets to present their case for and against a particular bill. Uh, They then break into smaller groups and deliberate amongst themselves. And, you can, and argue, you can argue with your other, I would say small groups of 12. So you can argue with the 11, other 11 in your small group, um, how you think they ought to vote and how you plan to vote. And then take a, take a vote by secret ballot. <clears throat> and I would require a 55% majority to pass new legislations so that gives you some, something beyond 51% imposing their will on 49% and some deference to the status quo and tradition. And it also is outside the statistical margin of error. So with 400 or actually 385 people, you've got a 5% confidence interval, a 5% margin of error with a 95% confidence interval. In other words, the, um, if you had been able to have every citizen of the state, every voter of the state come and hear the same argument and consider, and, and, and get the same information, the result you would have gotten is within five percent of the result you got with uh, with four, a sample of four hundred. Gets a little tighter with uh, there'd be a ninety five percent certainty, nineteen out of twenty percent uh, certainty that that the um, the result would be within five percent. Um, gets a little tighter, of course, and a little more confident uh, if you go above, above that, that number. So you're getting the same result you would get with everybody participating. The decisions are made based on evidence and arguments. They're not made based on campaign finance and influence. Every Everybody, regardless of their wealth and influence in the system, gets to present their argument for and against the proposal uh, or both sides or all sides. Um, and um, And I think it promotes respectful debate. Uh, When you're presenting your arguments um, as an advocate, uh, probably not a good idea to scream insults and say everybody who disagrees with you is an idiot. (laughs) That's as it usually happens in our political campaigns. And likewise, when you break into your small groups, again, probably not a good idea to to be screaming insults at everybody and get all excited about it. Um, And most of us, we're serving uh we're serving as when we serve on that jury we're serving as nate and Hugh. we're not serving uh we're, we're we are each an individual we're not we're not a republican we're not a democrat we don't think of i think most of us don't think of ourselves that way we're more complicated than that uh and we've got our unique life circumstances so i, I particularly like the idea of mixing everybody together. And in the small groups discussing it, um, other people have different backgrounds, different life experiences. I think you're likely to learn something from them uh, of how this bill would would influence them and how they think about it um, based on their own life experience and background. Uh, and uh, again, again, calm, calm division. I think and um, and just respect everybody. Uh, I think it's. Um, I think it's an ideal system of government, really.
1: (laughs) So does this fully replace the legislature or does it create essentially another branch?
0: I would add it as an additional house of the legislature, at least initially after after a long period of this, maybe we decide we don't really need an elected legislature at all. Um, But uh, initially require, I'd like to merge the two houses, Minnesota has two houses legislature, federal government of course has two houses, Uh, I'd like to merge those into one and have the citizen jury serve as the other house of the legislature. So everything to become law has to pass, um, has to pass the citizen jury and would have to pass the, the elected legislature.
1: And who, and just excuse my random questions here. I'm just trying to figure out all the inner workings of this. Who introduces the bills that the, that the jury is voting on?
0: I would allow every elected legislator the right to introduce at least one bill over a two-year period a biennium um, so which to me would make actually being a legislature more fun because currently unless you're in the unless you're a majority leader basically in your legislature you have practically no power uh, um, here you get to introduce introduce your pet your pet issues Um so I'd give every every uh, legislator of both parties or all parties the right to introduce one bill. I'd give the governor the right to introduce maybe thirty bills or something, and then I think also have a petition process that if you get signatures equal to 0.1 percent of the population or whatever, uh, you can introduce your bill directly to the legislature to the to the citizen jury. Um, and I would have things both initiate with the legislate with the elected legislature and initiate with the citizen jury. So. It would be another hurdle, you could argue, that uh, we don't get enough. It's hard enough now to get for government to get anything done, and now I'm proposing to, th- to throw another hurdle there. Um, but I think we can break the, the logjam some by introducing things to the, the citizen jury first, And then if it passes, if I'm governor, if if something passes the citizen jury, I would demand that the elected legislature vote on it. I'd say, you know, you can vote against it, but it would be very disrespectful to the people of our state who specifically said that this is something they want after full information and full debate. They want this. The least you can do is hold a vote on it uh, and not just table it.
1: Yeah. And you uh, you mentioned briefly there uh, adding in another hurdle uh, for the government to do things. Now, I, I personally, I, I want as many hurdles as possible for the government to do anything. I think uh, that the least amount of things they do, the, the better. So I wanted to make sure just a little break here from the jury conversation. But what's your kind of political philosophy? What do you think the role of, of government is?
0: Well, I'm I'm I consider myself to be rather a libertarian, uh, um, and I agree in principle with the idea, the statement that the government that governs least governs best. Not in the sense you should always govern less, but you should only govern, only introduce laws, only restrict people's behavior if there's a really good reason for it, if it's really, um, and not for their own benefit, but for the benefit of others. Like smoking, for instance, I think we overtax cigarettes. Uh, smoking mostly just harms the person who's smoking and it's their own choice. Uh, they're 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 well aware by this time that they're shortening their life expectancy, uh, so we can stop lecturing them about that. Uh, um, so uh, so anyway, yeah, so I would be, for instance, um, uh, I would legalize marijuana and most drugs uh, not in favor of reinstating prohibition of alcohol uh, not so worried about people smoking uh, because those things only harm the person who's doing them they don't harm other people so there's no real reason to to restrict people's behavior in in, in that
1: case So like the, the role of government being to protect people's natural rights if they're going to do anything to, you would stop people from actively taking rights away from other people, from hurting other people and taking their stuff, as we would say, in the, in the libertarian circles, uh, instead of going out there and trying to mold society for whichever way you, you see fit. We might disagree with people smoking or with people smoking weed or doing drugs or anything like that. Speaking from my own perspective here, I might disagree with people doing that, but I don't feel that I have the right to stop them from doing that if they're not hurting other people. Uh, I might try to talk them out of it. You know they're my friends, but uh, so going back on the on the jury thing real quick, what I really wonder about is what are the limiting factors to this? So, what, are there limits on what this uh, this jury democracy could vote to do? Are there natural rights that are still protected that they wouldn't our, be our able Bill to of, to take away? Our Bill
0: of Rights are still protected, and I don't think people would that would be an uh, I think we would enact very, probably almost never enact a law that that um, infringes on the Bill of Rights because I think that's gonna be a really effective argument uh, to the jury. You can't pass this law because it, it violates the First Amendment or the Second Amendment or whatever. Um, uh, so um, yeah, we've still got the same natural, natural rights um, the, the Declaration of Independence uh, statement that, that uh, about promoting, uh, basically that the purpose of government is to promote life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. So I, I think that is the purpose of government, to protect liberties, uh, to promote happiness, and to promote life, but not to the extent we've done it in COVID, like the only purpose of government is to prevent deaths.
1: Yeah, that's where where I really wonder with these things is uh, during the COVID, which you had the COVID lockdowns anyway. So, you know, I can't make the argument that, well, jury would have decided to lock down everyone uh, because the government you have now also decided to do that. But uh, I feel like uh, the majority of people uh, would have been on board with doing the lockdowns or doing vaccine mandates uh, if you were to be voting on a bill to uh, ban assault weapons or take away, take away guns from people and uh, you have a day like today when we're coming in here, they might be pretty quick to do, to do things like that. So my, my biggest emphasis would be on how you make sure that natural rights are still protected from the majority deciding that they want to take away rights from the minority.
0: Yeah, I, th- I think the people would be better at protecting those rights than than government is. Um, the Supreme Court, for instance, I'd I'd actually have this the um, the jury replace the Supreme Court or become the Supreme Court, uh, and they would be um, they would protect they 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 would have a lot more respect for individual rights. I think than in general than the Supreme Court has had. Uh, the Supreme Court, our current Supreme Court is a lot more interested in protecting the rights of persons who are corporations than of persons who are persons. Uh, and the Supreme Court uh, in general over history has been, uh, has very rarely uh, protected the rights of individuals. They approved the, the internment of Japanese citizens in World War II, uh, approved mandatory sterilization of um uh, what was the term they used in that decision of uh, um, imbeciles, I think it was, uh, um, uh, and approved uh, in Dred Scott returning freed slaves to their owners? So um, they do not have a great history of promoting individual liberty. I think the jury of citizens could hardly do worse and would almost certainly do better.
1: We do argue a lot on the podcast that the Supreme Court. Um, they, they don't create laws. They don't write laws. They issue opinions. It's it's up to the government whether or not they enforce whatever it is that the Supreme Court uh, decides to do. I think we're I think we're gonna be getting pretty close to a time where the supreme court power goes back to what it was supposed to be which is that they issue an opinion on a law and then the people are supposed to vote uh, whether or not uh, the supreme court said this is unconstitutional but my guy i voted for he still enforces unconstitutional law so i'm gonna try and take him out of office i think that was kind of the original intention of what the court oh, was that's doing an
0: interesting, that's an interesting take that it would be basically just advisory that mm-hmm. uh uh, uh that uh, the law should should not be be enforced. Well, basically,
1: and, the only people in government that doesn't have a SWAT team, so so they're not, you know, the, they're not meant to go in and enforce whatever the decision is that, that they do. They they no, issue they, an opinion. But,
0: but we treat it like it's, um, uh, we treat it like the, the it's enforcement. Mm-hmm. Nobody, nobody's challenged them. I don't, uh, Abraham Lincoln actually kind of did in World War, in, in the Civil War, actually kind of ignored some Supreme Court decisions. And, and Andrew Johnson, fam, uh, Andrew Jackson famously said uh, when the Supreme Court ruled it was unconstitutional to, or um, yeah, unconstitutional to move the, um, to move the Cherokee Indians uh, from North Carolina and Tennessee to, uh, to Oklahoma. He said the Supreme Court has made their decision. Now let them try to enforce it and just ignore it. Um,
1: yeah. Um, I another thing I'm just thinking on the jury democracy thing, and I, I while you were talking, I had a bit of an electoral college type scenario come up with where the jury uh, votes on what they want with the law, uh, but then it's up to their representative to uh, make that vote in in the state. House or Senator or whatever it is. And if they don't align with whatever that jury decides, well, maybe they're going to get kicked out of office here pretty soon because they're ignoring what the people directly told them to do. Yeah.
0: that's what. So I'm keeping the, I'm I'm proposing we keep the elected legislature and um, it would take some political cojones to, I think, to vote against what the jury has voted for. And that's going to be a campaign issue against you. If you're, if you're repeatedly voting against what the jury has voted for, I think it's gonna be tough to be reelected. You can do it occasionally on principle, but um, yeah. So I think we we, would move the legislature to largely, um, not rubber stamp, but mostly verify what the jury has said.
1: So one thing I was gonna ask, because we have a really big issue with it here in Tennessee is what it's like for ballot access in Minnesota uh, for that. So you're running under, I'm gonna mess up the name, but Independence, is it Alliance? party yeah, it's, okay. it's the independent
0: independence alliance which is the successor to the independence party was jesse ventura's party here when he got elected governor and then they merged with a national party called the alliance um so i'm running with uh, i'm not running as an independent as an individual i'm running with a party called the independence alliance um and um uh, so we've got to, so I, I'm the nominee now, uh, I am collecting 2000 signatures. We need to collect 2000 signatures by, mem- by next Tuesday, turn them in the day after Memorial Day, uh, for me to get on the ballot. But once that's done, I'll be on the ballot. There's no primary or anything down the road.
1: As a, uh, as a libertarian here in Tennessee, you have to get 56,000 signatures to, uh, Oh to- really? Wow. Yeah. It's pretty, re- you got to get 25 as a Republican or a Democrat. Uh, but you got to get 56,000 as a third party candidate. So it's a... Uh,
0: oh my gosh. Yeah, it should just be... The Republicans and Democrats don't have to get... They're, because they have major party status, I think they don't have to get any signatures at all to get on the ballot. They just pick their nominee. Um, but yeah, that would be interesting if we treated every each all the parties equally. They've all got to get the same number of, of signatures to get on the ballot.
1: That. That would be interesting if we did that. Uh, of course, the the people in control don't really like competition as much as they pretend to like competition. Uh, no, absolutely. Absolutely. Pretty often. Uh, so
0: tell me, uh, it works tell for me- works for industry and corporations, by the way. So yeah. <laughs>
1: Generally, once you're actually in charge, you 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 can become pretty anti-competition. From what I've seen uh, here yeah. in the past, that that can apply to corporations, people in politics. Uh, they don't really want to have to compete with someone else someone else's ideas. Uh,
0: yeah, plus, uh, the York, plus the New York Yankees too. <laughs> yes, exactly.
1: <laughs> that's that's true. Uh, so, what are some of the other problems going on in Minnesota that you think you'd be able to to help fix, to help solve? That the jury democracy would Be able to help solve what are people dealing with there right now?
0: Um, we've got uh, um, we've got n- copper nickel mines in northern Minnesota near the boundary waters, a wilderness area along the Canadian border, and that would leak into they will, will leak for sure mercury and toxic metals from the ground in the try in the process of extracting copper and nickel, and then they the the companies would have these. Uh, tailings dams that would have to last forever to keep those those toxic metals from leaking into the Boundary Waters and into Lake Superior. So I oppose those, um, but that's an issue here. Um, uh, I'm confident that if we put that to a jury, they would agree with me on that uh, and oppose those mines. the, we've, Of course, we have become in Minnesota, unfortunately, the world capital for police killings of civilians uh, with George Floyd's killing and, and the other police killings here. And we've got a problem with the police that um, I don't know if other states are like this, but under state law, you cannot fire or discipline a police officer or any public employee without it going to arbitration. And so uh, I think that works okay with other public employees. It doesn't work so well with the people with guns. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, so the arbitrators routinely overturn almost every, every discipline. Uh, a, a, a cop pretty much literally has to murder somebody in order to get fired. Um, so I would repeal that law and make it a law that, that uh, the the police chief and I would also give it to the mayor and the city council separately that each of them can fire any cop they want. The police chief has free free reign to, dis- to discipline cops as um, as uh, he or she thinks is appropriate. Um, uh, and and then that, that can't even be bargained away in union negotiations that, that, that that's uh, affirmed by law. So I think that we can It's not To me, it's not an issue of whether we need more or fewer police officers. We probably need more right now because of the crime wave we're we're having. Uh, But we need better police officers. We need to weed out the bad ones. We need to prevent the blue wall of silence that says you never report misconduct by your fellow officers. Uh, And once we start firing people who behave badly, and once we start firing cops who knows their partner behaved badly but don't report it. Um, we're gonna have good cops. You fire the bad ones. Pretty soon, you don't have very many bad ones. When you do make a mistake and hire a bad one, you fire them again, and and pretty soon you don't have very many bad ones, and you improve the culture. So that's that's my solution on the on the police uh, police violence uh, police killings of civilians in Minnesota.
1: Yeah, I think uh, obviously we've seen a lot about. Uh, what's gone on uh, up there over the over the last couple of years? We've argued quite a bit that one thing we need to focus on is decreasing the amount of interactions that police have with the public, and that's one of the reasons that we would want to decriminalize uh, most of the drugs because we feel like the police are often just looking for things like that uh, for people who might only be harming themselves and and no one else. We have laws, if they do harm someone else, we've already got laws for that. And I think the interactions between people and the police, there's just too too many of them. When you have so many interactions, a certain percentage of them are gonna go wrong. And then whenever you throw in, uh, like what you're talking about, not being able to fire someone who's doing a bad job, uh, that also creates a really bad incentive structure. You need that incentive as an employee, someone who's working somewhere, that if you do a bad job at your job, that maybe you will lose your job. And you take away that incentive, then uh, you're basically relying on the person just being a, a perfect, virtuous angel who is going to do the right thing at all times, uh, which is uh, not not always the case for everyone.
0: Right, right. Not, not always the case. Yeah, it's not, it's, I'm not saying, of course, that, that most, we we don't need to debate what percentage of police officers are bad um, or should be fired, but uh, if they're like any other profession, some of them are bad at it and some of them should be fired.
1: Yeah, and it's a highly stressful job. One of the people that we uh, interviewed, I think it was Larry Sharp, who's running for uh, governor in New York. uh, He was talking about how police need to be able to take time off like a few months off because uh he was in the marines i believe and you're not just on tour on the battlefield for 20 years straight and you never get a break or anything like that they go for a year and then they come back and then they go back on another tour and they come back and right now we're dealing with a lot of people i'd never heard anyone make that point before we're dealing with a lot of people who have been on the battlefield for 15 years straight right now and of course that's going to create a lot of mental stress for people. So yeah, we never really, we, we don't hate on police. Um, they've got a unique power compared to other jobs, obviously inside of our country, a very stressful job. And uh, I think that there's a lot more things that we can do to make that easier.
0: Yeah. I'd never heard that idea before that, that, that may have merit. Yeah.
1: Yeah. I, I definitely liked it. So where, uh, where can people go to get involved Uh, with your campaign to keep track of what it is that you're doing Uh, maybe help uh, get some signatures if you need them or kick in some donations something like that Um, Uh, my website
0: is is mctavish which is m-c-t-a-v as in victor i-s-h mctavish4mn.org the number four is the number four uh, so yeah, please go there. Uh, if you just Google McTavish for governor or Hugh McTavish for governor, you should find find me, find my website. Um, and um, uh, yeah, we definitely need the elections. Take cost money, unfortunately, in the, in our country. And so uh, that's the best thing you can do is is donate to the campaign, uh, or maybe the best thing you can do is forward some of our materials on my blog and on our website to your friends. <coughs> Excuse me, by email. Uh, so both of those things. I'm on Twitter and TikTok. I'm kind of a TikTok star now. All right. I probably could have. I probably could have been voted least likely to be a TikTok star <laughs> out of high school, but but uh, I've got i am got I'm getting a fairly decent number of followers on TikTok. So
1: <laughs> that's awesome. Congrats on that. We we've had some success as of late on there, and I've actually been pretty surprised because I didn't think that uh, you know the people who run that app would really be uh, wanting to let the things that we say get out there to everyone. But actually they've, they've been pretty, pretty fair and open about everything so far. So, so, yeah. so that's good. But anyway, uh, I really appreciate your time today. I hope everyone goes and checks out your website, checks out all the social media, the blog, everything like that. And, and I really like the fact that you're thinking outside the box out outside of the, the, just the normal, the problems that we just keep in this cycle over and over again. So, so that's really cool. And we wish you the best of luck.
0: Uh, thank you. Thank you, Nick.